0: So, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. We're going to be starting there. So, it should be like dead center of your Bible, right after the book of Esther, right before the book of Psalms, the Psalms. So I'll go ahead and read for us. Um, and Make sure you have notes in front of you because there's a lot to be covered today. Uh, And at certain points it's going to feel more like teaching than preaching, but I hate this, but I have to do it at some level for an overview just to start. Uh, So we're getting an overview and we're getting the first couple verses of Job. Um, So Job chapter 1, we're going to read down to verse 5. I'll go ahead and read. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him 7 sons and 3 daughters. He possessed 7000 sheep, 6000 or 3000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. God, thank you that you make yourself known so clearly to us. That, Lord, you have made yourself so clearly known that you have given for those who suffer, which, Lord, is all of us, would suffer righteously. You have given an answer in your word. So, Lord, as we embark on this journey through this book, do would your, I pray that your word would do your work in your people, by your spirit, for your glory. And, Lord, we are desperately dependent upon you right now, so we ask that you'd help us now. May your word, your ancient word, long preserved, would it speak to our hearts this morning? Make known, correct, instruct. Would you put back into joint what has been broken? We ask, we pray. We desperately need your spirit. So Lord, we ask that you would do that in us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off by just giving you a couple quotes uh, about the book we're about to embark on. Someone once said, uh, here's the first one I'll give you. Oh, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. This one's not on the screen, but you can keep that one up there. The story of Job is one of the best known in the entire Bible. And yet, strangely enough, it's the one that's least understood. No book in Scripture is so shrouded in mystery as this ancient story. Let me give you another one. This is from an unbeliever. This is what he says about the book of Job. He says it's the greatest book ever written with pen. I would probably disagree with him. I don't think he's right. But I think it's very intriguing that even unbelievers approach a book like Job and they're very intrigued. Why? Why, Why do the righteous suffer is the question we're going to be asking. The book of Job is generally on the surface well known. We, we know today we've only read the good parts of Job, which are the first few verses and the last few verses. But if you're taking notes, and this should be given to you at the top, this is what I want us to see. With the overview, the entirety of Job, this is what I want us to see. Job shows us how to faithfully suffer. So Job shows us how to faithfully suffer. And secondly, and points us to the one who has faithfully suffered. So Job shows us how to faithfully suffer. And he points us to the one who has faithfully suffered. And to do that, before we jump into the book of Job, there really are some housekeeping, I'm calling them housekeeping items, we need to talk about. Because this book can be very confusing, and it is very confusing. I mean, anybody to say that it's not, there are more words in the book of Job that are unknown to Hebrew scholars than any book of the entire Bible. The word lion in the book of Job is used in five different ways. Like Just just to give you ideas, like this is a very complicated book. And that's the first thing I want us to see. The first housekeeping issue is language. Language. It's an Eastern book. This means that it is oriental in nature, which means that many of the thoughts and expressions will be very unfamiliar to us. Similar to the way that we have phrases like, it's raining cats and dogs. Someday, if the Lord tarries 10,000 years, they're going to look back at us and be like, what did those people in 2022 mean when they said it's raining cats and dogs? It never rained cats and dogs. So we're going to see a lot of expressions like that. So language is going to be a barrier. Here's a second. It's the style. It is a poetic book. And I know some of this is like, well, it doesn't really matter. That it's poetry, it does matter, <laughs> because hard, poetry is hard to understand, except for the first chapter, part of the first chapter, and then the end, end chapter, 95 percent of this book is poetry. Now I don't know about you, I don't cut my teeth too often on poetry. <laughs> right? maybe, maybe other people do, and that's great for the ones that do. I can't. But this means what it means for us is it means we need to take a step back and deeply digest what is being said. One, one author, I thought it was very helpful what he said, very instructive. He said, poems are always a personal take on something, communicating not just head to head, like we like to do, but from heart to heart. Okay, so this book, at, some, at, at, at multiple moments, you're going to walk away from our talk and be like, I don't know if he did justice to that. I'm, there's more questions to be plumbed here. And I want to be like, yes. <laughs> yes. And we're meant to. Here's the big piece I want you to see: We're meant to ask those questions. Job is he's trying to get us to ask. And here's the last piece with the way, with the housekeeping issues: is the topic is it deals with weighty issues? Now, to help place the book of Job, it's, characteri- it's characterized and it, rightly so as wisdom literature. So the topic, it deals with weighty issues. Now, just to give you a a frame of reference, just to put it within the other wisdom books, Proverbs, which we all love, is wisdom literature for daily living. and, And basically, they boil down to, the righteous are blessed and the wicked will suffer. Here, let's just listen to two different Proverbs. Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And, and when we hear that verse, we're like, yeah, of course, that's how it works. Or, or Proverbs 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. You know, we hear those two Proverbs and we're like, yeah, that's how it's meant to be. Right? In each of our hearts. Because, okay, so that's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, though, is wisdom literature for the vanity of life. Basically, the righteous and the wicked will all perish. Here, listen to Ecclesiastes seven fifteen. In my life, I have seen everything. This is Solomon. And he says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And his answer is, that's how it is. Life is like smoke. It's like, it's hebel. It's, it's, it's a vapor. But then we approach the book of Job. The book of Job is also wisdom literature, but it's, it's asking a different question. Why do the righteous suffer? The righteous do suffer. The book, this book is addressing a, different, a difficult issue. And we really have two options as we approach it. We can ask these questions from an armchair. So armchair questions versus wheelchair questions. It is really easy to sit in an ivory tower somewhere and drink fine wine and ask, Yes, of course the righteous suffer. Of course, armchair, let me sit in my armchair where everything is pleasant and ask the questions that we're going to ask. But the book is designed to get us out of the armchair and to look at the person or be in the wheelchair yourself and ask, Why do the righteous suffer? So I would encourage you as we, as we, dive into the book of Job, it's going to ask you many questions. And I encourage you to ask them. That's what it's meant to do. So why do the righteous suffer? And let me just give you the answer that the book gives. Right up front, Stephen Lawson, he says it like this. I think it's very helpful. He says, The righteous suffer because God, according to his infinite wisdom, chooses for them to suffer. At first thought, this may appear unfair or unjust. But in the book of Job the reader is allowed to go behind the scenes and see the higher purposes of god behind job's suffering this book is like no other in that it not just gives us a it doesn't just give us a human wisdom but we actually get to see, see the curtain of history torn back for just a moment and we get to look in behind and see god himself in his decision making And a better question maybe to see, so not just why do the righteous suffer, it also asks how do the righteous suffer? This book will lead us and challenge us in unexpected ways. And I love what he said, this author, he went on to say further, he said, this book is not merely academic, it is both about people and for people who know suffering. Now maybe you're like, well Daniel, I've never suffered like Job. But let me encourage you with this. Maybe not encourage you. If you haven't yet, you will. My grandmother, before, great-grandmother, uh, I had the privilege of meeting her, knowing her. She, was, she just passed like two years ago. And Before she died, the thing she kept asking was, why does God let me live? Why am I still here? She's watched, every, she's watched children die. She's watched grandchildren die. She's watched death all around her. And she just wonders, why? Why does God do this? So maybe not today. Maybe Job isn't for you today. Maybe you're going to, we're going to read all through Job, and we're going to be like, you know what? It missed, Daniel. It just went right over my head. But someday it won't. Someday it will hit you in a way that you'll need. So I know for sure, that. but there are also many here who face grief and who face suffering and anguish. This book will not just be an academic study for you. It will be a heart-to-heart journey with God through suffering. And here's the two extremes it guards us from. And this is the main reason why I picked this book. Is it guards us from two extremes. Here's the first one. The prosperity gospel. It's the gospel of wealth. The prosperity gospel comes along and says, if you're poor you should come to Jesus because he'll make you rich. Or if you're sick, come to Jesus because he'll make you well. Now, I hope we all know the prosperity gospel is a lie from the pit of hell. And it's not new. Just so we're clear, it's not new. It's very, very old. And we're going to see in the book of Job, this is the oldest book in the entire Bible. And it's right there. And we all know the prosperity gospel is a bad thing. I hope we know that. And we know this, but I think there's still remnants of it. I I can't tell you the amount of times I've talked to people, talked to students, talked to older people, talked to younger people, talked to all sorts of people through life, and they're like, yeah, the prosperity gospel, that's terrible. I would never believe that. But then we have thoughts like, I've been a good husband all week. Why would God reward me with fill in the blank?" Or I've been a good Christian, why would God allow me to suffer? And here's the second pitfall. I think this one's far more insidious for us, living in the West. It's the therapeutic gospel. It's the gospel of self-fulfillment. Now let me ask this. What happens when the prosperity gospel comes to people who are already wealthy? Which is like us in the West. We don't ever ask the question, most of us, if you, if you don't have a need in the week, like a literal need of like shelter or food or any such need, what happens? What's the lie that comes to us? And it's this. It's the therapeutic gospel, the gospel of self-fulfillment. It morphs from possessions to subjective benefits. It moves from physical things into feelings. Let me give you an example. If you feel empty, come to Jesus and he will fill you. Or or let me give you another one. If you feel depressed, then come to Jesus, he will lift your spirits. Or if if you feel aimless, come to Jesus, he'll give you purpose. Now, hear me rightly. This is where it's kind of confusing. Because the, the therapeutic gospel is right, just like the prosperity gospel is right in a sense. We will be rich in Christ, we will be fulfilled in Christ. But the gospel is not first and foremost that. Listen to what this, this other author said about it, the therapeutic gospel. He said, the gospel is not, oh, Lord, my life is empty. Fill me. The gospel is, oh, Lord, I am an offense to you. Rescue me. And this book will slap in the face both of these false gospels. It will slap in the face prosperity gospel, and it will slap in the face therapeutic gospel. Because we're about to see a man. Now, now, okay. Now we've done some overview, some heavy lifting, some housekeeping issues. I, I want us to look at the book now. So go down, look down in verse one, and it just starts very simply. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. So I've just asked five different questions there just to help us get kind of a, our bearings on who this guy was. So where was Job from? That's the first one we'll ask. Job was from the land of Uz, as you see in verse 1. And, and scholars say, and there should be a picture. Yeah, so there's what scholars say is Uz. <laughs> and if you need just more reference, here's Africa, here's Asia. <laughs> this is very, like, Daniel geography. Here's Europe, and here's Arabia. And Uz, they claim, it was, was just east of Jerusalem. It was around the land of Edom. So you have the Chaldeans there in the north. You have the, and we're going to see them here soon, the, the, um, the names escaping me, the other guys that... Job's family. They're down there in the south. So they just think that Job, Job generally lived in that area. Uh, Lamentations four twelve, 12, uh, it says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. You dwell in the land of Uz. That's where they get that. Based on this verse from Lamentations, we see land. The land of Uz is, is basically to, to that side of Jerusalem. But what we need to see in verse 1 is really important. And it's important just in the front end of the book of Job. It is not just that Job was not from Israel. What we need to see is he was outside of Israel. So Job was outside. So where was Job from? He was outside of Israel. And the importance of the land of Uz is not that he was... It's not, it doesn't matter where he's from. That's not the point. The point is he's not from the people of God in that way. But what's interesting about this book is not what's there... But what's actually not there? Have you ever thought that? Sometimes what's interesting is not just what's there, but it's what's not there. Now, there are three people in the entire Old Testament that have, zero, that have no genealogies. And a genealogy are usually the parts of the Bible where, like, yep, okay, this person begot this person, this person begot this person, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. And that's fine, but genealogies are really important because they do something. They tie you to a time and to a place and to a people. But we open the book of Job and we see none of that. We see nothing of this guy. There are three people in the Old Testament. The first is Adam, which God begot, (laughs) pretty important. And then you have Melchizedek. And if you know your New Testament at all, you're like, oh, goodness, Melchizedek, he's really important. And the third is Job. That's really strange. And one of the main reasons that a genealogy, a lack of a genealogy, is really important is it's supposed to make us all look at him and be like, oh, oh my, who's this guy pointing forward to? Who, who is this guy? Who, number one, who is this guy? But also, we don't even know where he's from, who, is, who his family is. So just let that stick in your mind as, you, as we go forward. But when did he live? This is also really important. So there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the question is, when did he live? And I would argue that he lived during the patriarchal age. During the patriarchal age. Yeah, so there it is. And just jump back to that timeline real quick. So if you, and if you can't see it in the back, I'll give it to you. Here on the left is the Abra- Abraham was born in the year 2166 B.C., supposedly. And then the exodus from Egypt was 1446 And they claim, I would argue this is true, that the events of Job in this book were somewhere between Abraham and the people of God in that way, in the exodus. And listen to what one author said about it. He said, he lived independently of the giving of the promises of Abraham before the captivity and and exodus of Egypt, before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, before the conquest of the promised land. That means that Job is likely one of the oldest books in the entire Bible. Job's wealth is measured in livestock. They didn't even have money. (laughs) They had livestock. Job's leadership in the home is one of a priest family. And over and over again, we see Job's really, really old. And this is wisdom coming to us from the very foundations of the earth at some level. And I want, to, I want to be very clear on this next section, this what was Job like. Because what was Job like, and then we're going to see his character here in a second. We need to like, stick it deep in our minds. Because all throughout this book, we're going to be tempted to believe what the people, his friends, come to him and say. That we're going to be tempted to believe that what God has said and what the author has said is not true. So listen to what he says in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So what was, what was Job like? Uh, blameless. Blameless. And it's his character. He's blameless. Now the word blameless here is the same word that's used for as a sacrificial animal, a spotless one, without blemish. Psalm 119, 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's a a kind of personal integrity. The blameless one is the one who walks with God and walks in the law of God. Now, to be blameless, let me be very clear, is not perfection. He's not saying, well, look, Job, Job was perfect. Nope, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying he had a high quality of character that was supreme. Now he goes on, here's the second one upright. So we've seen four characteristics blameless, upright, and this one's not on there. It's his relationship with others. So upright, his relationship with others. This means that Job dealt with other people, including his servants in his household, in a way. Picture a CEO, but picture a really, really nice CEO. <laughs> picture a CEO that wasn't um, out to cheat you. Picture a CEO that really, really cared for his people. And that, that word upright is used several other places. Let me just re- reference a few. Proverbs 15, 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. And the Proverbs use upright in the, in the way of saying is He's not lazy. He was, he was His relationships with others, and it was upright. Okay, let's look at that third one. He feared God. And we look at his, his reverence. His reverence. The expression to fear God is found all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom books. In Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Job was one who approached God reverently. And here's your last one. Shunned evil. He shunned evil. We don't use the word shunned enough in our society. We always think, when we hear shun, we think what the Amish do. So shunned evil. He turned away from evil. And he hated what God hates. Job was one who kept away from evil. And as you see these four characteristics, I, I lay them before you, and I lay them as, as just, you need to remember them. Because, like I said, all throughout this book, it's going to be questioned over and over and over again. Is Job really blameless? Is Job really unright? Does he have a secret sin somewhere? Does he got some skeletons in the closet? But let's look at what he has. He's not just like that. He's beyond something that in his character. Look at what he has. What did Job have? Look down in verse 2 and 3. And I know on the front end of this, again, there's going to be a lot of... um, It feels more teaching-like. But if we don't get who Job was, we'll never understand what is happening to him. So what did Job have? There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels... 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. Now, if I were to tell you that, again, this is one of these things in our western minds that it's kind of hard to grapple with. Like, why are they telling me how many sheep he has? Why are they telling me how many camels he has? Well, it would be similar to if I told you he has three children And he has a white picket fence around his house. And he's a real sweet guy. He's a real swell guy. He goes to work in his suit every day. Now we in the West in the 21st century would start to think, ah, this guy has the ideal situation. And that is exactly what you're meant to think. That's exactly what the author is trying to show us here. He's trying to make us see Job had the perfect setup. He had the three children. He had the white picket fence. He had the nice sedan. He had all the nice things. He, he even goes further. What else did Job have? He had familial blessing. Familial blessing. Family blessing. Rich inheritance. The number of children even there. It's meant to show us the ideal. So he not only had familial blessing, he also had ownership blessing. The, the golden touch. Everything Job touched turned to gold. Like, not literally, but like it, it turned to gold. There again, it's another idiom in our own culture. It turned to gold. 7,000 sheep and goats would have required hundreds of servants to work them. 3,000 camels, that's essentially like saying he could import anything from anywhere. Well-dressed, well-fed, man of the East who surpassed anyone in his own day. I love what Christopher Ashe, again, he says, he says Job was on a regional or a local scale what Adam was meant to be on a global scale. A great, rich, and powerful ruler. And this guy named Job had everything going for him. Now, if you stopped reading at this point, you'd be like, the Proverbs are right. Proverbs 14, 13, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but sinners' wealth is laid up for the righteous. But he gives even one more what about Job. What did Job do? So look in verses 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each each one, one on his day. That's likely their birthday party, basically, that they'd go and have every year. And back to verse 4. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Okay, so even, you notice the way they, they talk about the three sisters. It's likely those, those girls were still living at home. So this puts Job even not old at this point, if this is true. Job's a very young man, 40s, 50s, 60s maybe. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he had spiritual oversight. That's what I want you to see. Spiritual oversight. He was life-giving. Another way to say this is, this is what righteousness does. So you think about who righteousness is, now we're looking at what does righteousness do? It cares for those under it. It's life-giving. Job was blessed with a close-knit family, the result of God's rich blessing. And now we should not see these parties, I want to be very clear, these parties that we see that his son's having, we should not be thinking of ridiculous ragers that we see in our own day. That's not what we have here. What we have here is celebration that's the abundance of familial harmony, familial love. But notice what Job would do at the end of them. He would go and he would, in verse 5, it said Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Now Job lived in a time that he was the family priest. Okay, I want to be very, very clear. I don't want to see any of you outside your families now being like, I'm consecrating my children. Nope, that's not where we're at. He lived in a different time of revelation. But he, in this time, acted as a family priest. He did it seriously with a contrite and sober attitude. Now I want you to think for a second. Maybe you're one of Job's kids. Think for a second. You, you just have a party the next morning, you probably were up late with your, with your siblings, having a party, celebrating your birthdays. And your father, Job, he anxiously comes in and he says, we have, an, we have a sacrifice waiting. When you need to come out. You're still, you're still all like matted-eyed because you were up too late. Looking at each of his children, he would say, this one's for you. This one's for you, little, little Billy. That's the good Hebrew name, little Billy. Looking at each of his children, this one's for you. And he would light the animal and it would consume it. The sons and daughters know, all knowing that this is what would happen to me if there had not been a sacrifice. Job was a good dad. And he, he cared so much for his children. He thought, oh, if they just curse God in their mind, I want to atone for it. And again, Christopher Ashe, he says this. He says, it sets a happy scene with one shadow. The happiness consists in a good man being a great man, a pious man being a prosperous man. It is a picture of the world being as the world ought to be. A world where, righteous, where the righteous lead. It is a world where the prosperity gospel seems to be true. The righteous get blessed. This is what it is. And there's one creeping question that, that Satan is going to bring up here this next time. In this next verse, verses, we're gonna see next week. Does a person worship God out of genuine love or mainly to get God's blessing? That's exactly what he's gonna bring. Now I want to end with two application emphasis. Emphasis is from the book of Job. So application emphasis is emphases. Consider Job. And I want you to turn real quick in your Bible to James. James chapter 5. I know we're studying Job, but I want you to see the connection to, but between what I'm about to say. Because it, it, it will change everything else. So James, James 5. And then we'll, we'll do verses 10 and 11. Uh, looking at verse 11 first. It says, Behold, we consider those, who's blessed, who, those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James is talked about in two ways. Or James talks about Job in two ways here. The first is Job as an example. And he says, consider those. So Job is the one, I think he's arguing here just in a second, that, that we're to consider so as we study Job, we'll be looking at him as an example. And at this point, it would be really easy for me to look at you and be like, be righteous, do better, stop stop not caring for your children, stop these things. Look at the way Job cared for his family, look at how prosperous he was. It would be really easy to do that. So Job as an example, when we need to see how righteousness does suffer, and that's good. We're going to look at Job being an example. But we also need to see this second piece. Look at verses 10 and 11. So as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and we've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Job there is also Job as a prophet. Job as a prophet. And he says, take the prophets. And I want to close by looking at this. There are two trajectories there of of the book of Job and I think this is the most compelling thing about the book of Job that that is often overlooked that we look at Job and we're like okay this is how I should suffer wicked this is this is how the righteous suffer just follow be like Job do better be like Job but look at even how the book is structured look real quick and there should be like a yeah that's good I don't know who all can see that but I'll just give you in this upper left hand corner It's called the prologue. We all know the prologue of the book of Job. We all know this is how we know the book of Job. We know it starts real good. Job's in a good place. Then his life falls apart. And then we see, oh, don't worry, but God will restore him. That's that's what we all know. Job's character and his circumstances and his tests, they're all up here. And then we see how far he falls. Job and his suffering and and then his friends standing before God. And then we see the epilogue, the vindication, the intercession, the restoration of Job. And we look at this, and I've heard this so many times. The roots of the prosperity gospel say, look, look, Job, his life was good. It all fell apart, but then God blessed him. And he blessed him doubly, so that's okay. And that's, if we take Job as an example, that's where we end up. We end up in this place that we're like, look at Job. He's so great. Be like Job. Be righteous. And there's a piece of that that's true. Be righteous. But we need to see, more than anything, the messianic trajectory. The messianic trajectory. We need to see that Job is not just our example, but Job is our prophet. And he's pointing us forward. He's pointing us forward to a day when there will become one who suffers ultimately. He points us to the one who faithfully suffered. Now I want to show you the Lord Jesus' trajectory. So that was Job's, okay, and that was just like an overview of it. I want you to consider where the Lord Jesus began. And people always want to be like, oh, where he began. He began He began at his birth. And I'll be like, kind of, true, in a sense. But before he did that, in Philippians 2, it says... His heavenly position. We almost always forget this. Jesus is God. Meaning that he became flesh. Meaning that unlike Job. See Job does not. He doesn't want anything that's coming his way. The Lord Jesus was in heaven. He had all of the love of the Father. He did not have to step into eternity. He was in a heavenly position. Listen to what Philippians 2 says. He was in the form of God but did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. I want you to hear that again. He was in the form of God and did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Job is a prophet in the sense that he points us forward to the one who will ultimately suffer. And then we know the story, just like we know with Job. We know what happens to the Lord Jesus, his death and his sufferings. Listen to what it says that he did then. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So there's the death and the suffering, the sufferings of Christ. And what do we see then? Job is not just, hey, don't worry, be faithful, and then God will give you double your portion. That's not the point. That's not the point. If we make make Job as an example, that's where we end up. But he's to point us to the Lord Jesus. And we see then, after his death and his sufferings, we see finally the glorification and exaltation. Listen to what he says in Philippians 2.9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the the name that is above every name. Job is a prophet who... And Job points forward to the one who ultimately will suffer. Who will ultimately take on our suffering, who on our pain and suffering. Listen to Isaiah 53. I think this is up there. Hopefully it's up there for them. It's a longer passage. I want you to listen. Again, another prophet talking about the Lord Jesus. This is what he says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Here it is. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There it is again. We see it again. Even from Isaiah. This is where he was, the Lord Jesus, in his position in the heavens, yet said, God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die. For, for our glorification in him. Listen to, again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and, 9, 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, there it is past. Yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he might become rich. So as we consider looking at the book of Job, we can't just, we can't just end Job by thinking, well... All I need to do is persevere. And if I come out the other side, well, God will give me double. We, we miss it all entirely. So Job, as example, he's going to show us how to faithfully suffer. But he's also going to point us forward to the one who has faithfully suffered. And as we look to the one who's faithfully suffered, what we will do is actually learn how to suffer well. So we're going to take communion now. And if uh, the you guys could come, uh, yeah, Jared and Tony, if you guys could come forward, I want us to to read, and I want to, I want you to hear a caution from from the scriptures.